0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 13. We're reading verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these things this morning, difficult and challenging things, We ask that you would teach us and that you would guide us, that we would be humble to hear and receive your good instruction, and that by your Spirit, you would renew our minds and lead us in the path of what it means to offer ourselves as living and holy sacrifices to you. And so, we ask God that you would speak, for your servants are listening, amen. Our passage today needs a little introduction. It's a controversial one. Undoubtedly, there will be different opinions in the sanctuary today at the end of this. We addressed this in the first hour as we talked about modern approaches to politics. And I said there that if I didn't offend you during that time, that it's guaranteed that probably something offensive will happen together in this time. It's hard to talk about politics today. It's hard to have civil discourse. It's hard to even do theology about politics because it's so contested. There may be some momentum for some that wants to qualify or to dismiss what Paul says here because it doesn't quite comport with the way that they want to engage politically today. And it's right here at that place where we find tension and where we find ourselves uncomfortable that we need to find that God is perhaps bringing something to our attention. Because remember that this entire section of the book of Romans is framed by Paul's exhortation that we offer ourselves to God as living and holy sacrifices, and that we be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And as Paul addresses our relationship to governing and civil authorities. He is speaking about the renewal of the Christian mind. And so this is not a value-free area of life where we get a pass and get to be neutral, where God doesn't have anything to say to us. No, what we find here is that God is extremely interested in how we engage with governing authorities. And mind you that when this was written, there was no such thing as Christian governing authorities. That God lays claim on our lives as to how we think and how we speak and how we conceive of and how we relate to those who are our political superiors. And so the practical question is, what exactly does he say? And there's four principles of the renewed mind that we find here in Romans 13 and also stepping slightly larger into other aspects of Scripture this morning. The first deals with our obedience to civil authority. The second will deal with the role or the function of civil authority. Third, our indebtedness to civil authority. And finally, the one that everybody wants to get to, the limits of civil authority. So let's take each of those in course this morning. First, in verses 1 and 2, we, say, we see that we are called to obey civil authorities. It's stated very boldly for us here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We're called to obey. Please note, Paul's not speaking about the authorities that we like. He's not speaking about the candidate that we voted for. He's not speaking about the candidate that belongs to the particular political party that we may affiliate with. He's also not naive. He was mistreated by Roman authorities on several occasions. They ended up killing him. And he is saying that we don't have permission to pick and choose which ones that we'll submit to. We are to be subject to them, that it's part of the Christian life in the Christian profession, in the Christian way. Even those whom we deeply disagree with in beliefs and values and practices, we are to submit. Why, you may ask? Why does the Bible require something so onerous of us, especially when we are in fundamental disagreement at times? And the reason is simple. It's provided for us in the second half of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And the claim here is that God is the ultimate origin of all power, whether that power has been accumulated through force, through heredity, or by a common election that God is the origin of all those who are rulers in power. This doesn't mean that all their decrees and decisions are divine. This is no justification for divine right. It's not saying that God approves of everything that goes on in politics. But it is to say that God has assigned a certain function that in his plan for creation, As human beings gathered together, he has given a function to political authorities that they would govern them and oversee them. And that we are not to resist those governing authorities, even when they do not represent God's interest. Now let's get practical for a moment. This past year was full of political controversy for the church. Things here at Christ Church were very peaceable, and I'm grateful to you for that. But it was not an equally easy year around Christendom and talking with various people. My most contested moment was with a visitor who visited Christ Church one Sunday. He already made known to me his dislike for masks because he walked in without one. Everybody else was wearing a facial covering. And so I politely handed him one and asked if he would put it on. At the end of the service, we had opportunity to talk outside. And so he was asking me about various things. He was interested in theology. He was really interested in the Bible. And he was particularly interested. I never put this expectation on any of you. He was particularly interested in my studies in John Calvin. and So he was asking detailed, good questions. And then after we got through those series of questions with a bit of derision, he said, so what's up with the mask? My answer was Calvin. He looked at me like, "Why? In the, what does he have to do with anything? And it really isn't just Calvin, but it's calling on what the Bible says and then a long Christian tradition that has seen that when civil authorities ask us to do something and it doesn't compromise our faith and it doesn't ask anything that calls us outside of what we believe, and that there's a good motive and intention, public health, even if we don't like it, that we simply follow what they've asked to do. And friends, that's what our session was desiring to do. It's not that we loved singing behind a face mask. I haven't found anyone who found that experience pleasurable. I used to routinely get a fur ball in my throat, end up gagging and coughing through the course of the service is awful. And then everybody thinks you have COVID. But it was just simply a reality in which we were asked to do something. It was a reasonable request. And yes, there were all kinds of different reports about the efficacy of it and all of that. But here's the thing. We were asked to do it. And so the answer, because of Calvin, is because there's a robust notion stemming from the Reformation all the way down into our confession of faith, chapter 20, paragraph four, if you'd like to read it, of respecting the governing authorities and that this is good and it's right. And so what was happening in the course of that conversation is that my friend was insinuating that I was compromising, that I was capitulating, that I was conforming to the political regime by wearing a mask and asking congregation to do so as well. It didn't particularly go well when I gently pushed back and attempted to indicate that, no, the conformity that was happening in his thinking, the real conformity is that he was conforming to the world, that he was not allowing his mind to be transformed because the transformed mind very clearly here is very clearly revealed for us in Romans 12 and 13 is that we subject ourselves to governing authorities. We will get to all the qualifications in just a moment, but the qualifications cannot mute the basic, plain impetus of what's being said here that we respect our governing authorities and we seek to honor them and that we want to have a transformed mind, that more important than anything that we may be communicating politically about wearing a mask, because there is no political communication. It's just simply, for me, a matter of obedience to God at that point. And we just use that as an illustration, is that this is the transformed mind. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so we seek to obey civil authorities. Now, second, in verses 3 through 5, we see the proper role of civil authorities. Follow along with me. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath On the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so, the function that God assigns to civil authorities is very simple. It's laid out there for us in two things that the civil authority exists to praise the good, to encourage the good, to allow it to flourish, and also to punish the evil. Paul says, rather robust things about civil authorities that were rather pagan at that time. He says that they are the servants of God and that they exist for our good. And this will call into question all your mental categories. As you look at pagan rulers and you say, they're called the servants of God and they're for our good. And it is because Paul's understanding of this is that in human society, as we're gathered together, that there is a common grace that God extends and that he uses even those who are his enemies to provide a good common social order, that this is the way God has set up the world. And so to resist it is actually to fight against God is what Paul is arguing here. And so when our starting place in thinking about government is one of suspicion, And when our starting place is one of cynicism, this will not yield the kind of posture that we're being called to here. If we can't conceive that God has installed political rulers and that God does give common grace, even where he is denied and where faith in him is rejected, That God, when we don't see that he's able to work above and beyond and against all of that, that our God is bigger actually than political power, when we can't conceive of the world in that way, and that God can use political authority for our good, then we're going to struggle as Christians to hear the claim of God on our lives in this regard. We will be conformed to the world. We may put a Christian veneer on it, but it's not truly and profoundly Christian. Because what's truly and profoundly Christian is to be transformed in our minds and to see the proper role of civil authority, to appreciate it, and to submit ourselves to it. This leads us to our third point that we find in verses 6 and 7. We see that we are indebted to our civil authorities. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This doesn't need much explanation, it just needs the simple hearing and listening. And then we need to ask ourselves the question, what's the scorecard look like for us in this? What does it look like in your taxes? What does it look like in your words? What does it look like in your speech? When you get together with friends over coffee and politics comes up, what is it that you say? Are you showing honor? Are you showing respect? Do you recognize that God says that you're indebted to those who do take up that office? You're not indebted to them in a way that you offer unconditional obedience, but there is an appropriate indebtedness where we give them respect and we give them honor. Because the least thing we can do is recognize that who wants that job? Have you seen what it does to these people? Ages them by 25 years. It's an incredible burden. And so what we're called to do is to simply recognize that and in gratitude show honor and respect and to recognize that in the governing system in order, it requires taxes. And so they will lay heavy taxes upon us in order to support that. And Jesus, of course, says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's his face on it. He has the right to ask for it. And so, this is the Christian response to the civil authorities is that we do owe them a debt, that they do something on our behalf, preserving social order, upholding the world around us, which then is the context where the church lives out its mission. So, this is our third principle. Now, finally, going back to verses 3 through 5, our fourth principle, we also see the limits of civil authority. Now, this is extremely important because if God ordains and God is the one who assigns the functions of what proper and good government does, that it praises the good, that it punishes the evil, that it bears the sword and is to use that appropriately, then what this also means is that civil authorities are subject and accountable to him. That is, that any civil authority, any governing authority, will give account of itself to God. And if there's one thing that's frequently missing in Christian conversations and Christian discourse about the political scenario in which it finds itself today, it is this robust affirmation that God is the supreme authority, that God is the supreme judge, and that all political governors, that all political presidents, that all those who sit in the Supreme Court, that all those who inhabit the houses of Congress, that everyone will be called to account for their exercise of power. And they will be held to God's standards as to how they did that. Because friends, what we recognize in this is that when Jesus died and rose again, He didn't just rise and ascend to God's right hand to be Lord over your heart. He is a personal God to you, and he is a personal Lord to you. But please do not diminish his office, and don't allow anyone to do so, because this is not how Jesus conceives of himself. He conceives of himself as what he properly is, the Lord of heaven and earth, that he ascends to the right hand of God, and as John says it in Revelation, that he's the ruler of the kings on earth that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and profess that Jesus is Lord, that it's a cosmic statement, that Jesus is not some parochial king who just presides over a spiritual kingdom. He presides over the world. And because of that, he has the right to bring everything into judgment. And that, yes, political authority in Paul's day, as in our own, oversteps It goes outside the bounds that God assigns. And the robust Christian affirmation is to recognize that that political authority will answer to God. That political power is not ultimate. That there is one above and beyond. It's helpful to consider Christians of other cultural circumstances In particular, I was exposed to a man named Johnny Luum, excuse me, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Uganda in the 1970s. He served as the Archbishop during a very difficult time. It was during the reign of Idi Amin. The Anglican Church in Uganda was growing. It was the dominant Christian body. And also there were church services that, that were being harassed by members of the military. Political figures were going missing. People were being kidnapped, and there were unaccounted for murders. And so Luam set up a meeting with Idi Amin in which he registered his concerns for these things. And he did so as a Christian, explaining that this wouldn't lead to the health and flourishing of the country. And he stated himself respectfully. He was arrested. After being arrested, he was accused of being treasonous. He was then driven to the prison. And on the way to the prison, there was a car accident. His body was found days later riddled with bullets. It's said that Idi Amin himself assassinated Luum. And friends, this was an overreach of political power. But it was the Christian... How did Luam go to that meeting? The only way the Christian takes that meeting and is willing to stand is because of his confidence that there is more ultimate authority in the world than the one who inhabits the political office, that there is one that that political office will answer to. And it is that robust affirmation that we most deeply need because it gives a certain relativity to what's going on in the politics around us. It's not ultimate, that there is something bigger. Yes, politics is something we engage because we love our neighbors and we want their best. And we are also willing to lovingly confront and to share a better way that we believe God's world is organized and structured. But we also know that our world is broken and our world is in rebellion against the sun and doesn't appreciate his rule and also doesn't recognize that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And so it leads us to the question, and it's the question that I've held to last because we need to hear all the other affirmations. But what do we do when our civil authorities are not acting in God's interest? What about when they require that we disobey God? This is, of course, where our obedience ends. The government is not ultimate. It doesn't have absolute rights. We are called to submit to what is good and reasonable, but we are never called to subordinate ourselves to governing authorities that ask us to do one of two things. When the government commands what God directly forbids, when they require it of us, and it's something that God explicitly forbids. As a Christian, we can't do that. Or when the government forbids what God directly commands. As a Christian, we can't do that. We find it in the earliest days of the church in Acts chapter 4. It's there that Peter says to the high priest, when he was told not to preach the gospel, we we must obey God rather than men. And friends, this is our constitution. This is how we live, is in that dynamic tension, seeking to hear from God as we observe those limits of civil authority, as we seek also to respect those civil authorities. And Scripture also gives us provocative thought about what that civil disobedience can look like. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, find an intriguing interaction between Paul and the high priest there in Jerusalem. This is what it says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, "'Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day.'" You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It's a dialectic going on here that's important to observe. That Paul is testifying to his good conscience, his faith in Jesus. And the high priest has him hit. It's an act of physical violence and also public shame. Extremely shameful in that culture. To be hit in public, to be struck. And then Paul retorts, and he calls him a whitewashed wall. It's an insult. But you'll note that he was then corrected. He was corrected because he had dishonored, and he had shown disrespect for a person in authority. And Paul corrects himself, and he says, I did not know that he was in that position of authority. But what you'll see is that Paul doesn't back off the injustice, the shaming that had happened there. He's willing to allow that to stand. And so this is not just a submissiveness. It's not a capitulation, and it's not just an agreement. But that what happens here is this creative disobedience in which Paul is willing to affirm the honor and respect due to those in authority and also register his disagreement. And so this is one area of direction we receive from Scripture. We also find Jesus teaching on this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to look in chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, there's three illustrations given. We don't have time to look at each of them, but it involves the turning of the cheek, the handing over of, of, of your cloak, and walking an extra mile with one who conscripts you to do so. All had to do with situations of social injustice. These things were not to be. And the response is not just passive submission. Let be what be, just obey. Know that there's a more creative space that in that civil disobedience that Jesus calls us to take up. He gives the example of the man who sued for his tunic. This is the modern equivalent of your underwear. Somebody taking you for everything you're worth. Is actually against the Old Testament law. If you followed in Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 through 13, you would see that no one was supposed to be sued for their tunic, that you weren't supposed to just simply take, some, take away everything that someone had. And so Jesus says, well, when someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. I don't need to fill this out for you. But he's saying, strip it all off. Shame the person. Shame the authorities that are allowing it to happen because this is not the way that things are supposed to be. That when you're shamed and being hit in the face, turn your other cheek and allow it to happen again. Show them that there is a greater authority. Remind them of the injustice of the situation, that there is a very powerful form of nonviolent response available to the Christian is what Jesus points us to. And so, friends, there is a place for civil disobedience, but especially Christian civil disobedience. And we have to enter into that space in prayer, also with wisdom, consulting all that God says. And so the Bible speaks to us in our political lives. It speaks to us as to how we are to engage with that space that we are to obey civil authorities, that we are actually to honor them because we are indebted to them. We're to pay our taxes. We're to recognize that they have a role in this world, that we are not anarchists. We are supporters of social order, and that is a good thing assigned by God. And then we also recognize the limits of all this. And we recognize the limits under the robust affirmation of the gospel that Jesus is the true king, that he's the Lord of lords and that everyone and everything, every institution of the earth answers to him. And that's our great freedom, that we're not overwhelmed and taken under by politics as they change and by politicians as it comes and goes, that we live inside a bigger frame and a bigger narrative. That's the freedom you have as Jesus's disciple. So allow him to renew your mind, to take this on board and allow it to inform the way that we all engage in politics together. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the truth of Scripture, especially when it disagrees with us. It points us to our need to continue to seek renovation and change that can only come in submission to you. And so renew our minds and direct us and teach us, lead us into ways of life and truth. Help us, God, where we're weak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.